G'day, Osher here. Thanks for downloading the show. Before we get started, you might hear an ad here. Why? Well, because I've got to keep the lights on. I've got to pay the people that help me make this show. Andy, who does the audio production, and Rachel, my EP. I need to pay them. So you might hear an ad. What that ad is, it kind of depends on what you've been listening to and what pixels have been left behind on your phone. But if you don't hear an ad, cool. If you do, thanks. You help me keep the lights on. Pay Andy and Rachel. Anyway, here comes Mike, hopefully. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. We didn't know that smoking was bad for you for a long time. Once we discovered it was bad for you and weren't sharing that information, that's when I start having an issue with, you know, hey, we had the research in the science, but we kept it to ourselves and didn't share it and kept selling cigarettes. I'm like, oh, now I have an issue with what you're doing because you didn't know that, right? And it's very the same when we get to coal or climate or any of these topics. Like we've, yes, had a growing understanding of the science and it's become slowly more agreed upon and more, you know, more and more experiments and more proof, more theories that stack up and add together as the race of scientific knowledge. But now that we know pretty clearly what we are doing and we have known for, one would argue, a couple of decades, and we know the things that cause that, now we have a problem with the fairness of those things, I think, and that's something that we can try to rectify. That is the co-founder and co-CEO of Atlassian and clean energy climate evangelist, Mike Cannon-Brooks. And this is episode 397 of Better Than Yesterday. Hello and welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you so much for downloading the show. I'm really grateful you're here. Um, if you're new, this is a bi-weekly podcast that comes out twice a week. Mondays, I'm here with a guest. Fridays, I'm here with you. Each episode is guaranteed to help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. That's it. Something you hear on these shows, you're going to go to bed that night and go, you know what? Today was better. That's it. That's what I'm here to do. Just trying to put those kind of conversations out into the world and I want it to do what it says on the box. Thank you very much for all the lovely feedback about Friday's episode about, you know, kind of dealing with the IPCC report if climate anxiety is a thing for you. And why wouldn't it be? Because you live. <laughs> and the IPCC report says if we don't do something, we're not going to live. So <laughs> it's very important. It's pretty scary stuff. Pretty scary stuff. But thank you so much for the people that did reach out and check in on me. I, I do appreciate that. If you want to slip back, slip back on, listen to on Friday's episode, you can you can check it out as well. Send us your email at gmail.com. Is, is where you can find me. Look, I'm nearly at 400 episodes, all right? I've been here since 2013, and I'm so grateful to have Mike Cannon-Brooks on the show because 
from the moment I met him, and you'll hear me talk in this conversation about the very moment I met him, which is kind of strange, but it was amazing. He's just a dude. He was just a dude with a beard and a T-shirt. Like, hey, he's just a dude. Um, he's also a billionaire, but you wouldn't know by looking at him. You wouldn't know by talking to him. You wouldn't know by the way he speaks to you. And I've met more than one billionaire. I'm lucky to be that, but I have met more than one billionaire. No one looks and talks to me in the way that Mike does. Not one of them has looked and talked to me in the way that Mike does. He's just a dude. He's just a dude who thinks a lot. And he's a very, very, very clever man. Uh, him and his uh, co-CEO, Scott Farquhar, started uh, Atlassian a number of years ago. They are, I think, it's definitely Australia's first startup to IPO tech billionaires. Incredible. They produce a, a vast array of products at Atlassian, one of which is Trello, which me and the team here at Podcast HQ use every day. And he's an incredible guy. He puts his money where his mouth is. He is a avid technology investor uh, in software, in financial tech, in agriculture, in clean energy. He cares deeply. Mike just cares a lot about humans. He's a passionate clean energy evangelist. He was a driving force behind Australia securing the world's biggest lithium ion battery. If, if you remember, uh, South Australia is going through a lot of trouble and um, Mike just kind of made a move and made a gentleman's bet with Elon Musk and bada boom, bada bing, there it is. That's a short version. He's an incredible guy. He makes shit happen. And he's very, very vocal, which I love about him. He, he speaks from absolute fact. So when he talks, it is fact that he speaks and you can you can lock it into the bank when he says it out loud, in my experience. He's great on Twitter. You can find him, M. Cannon Brooks. So M-C-A-N-N-O-N-B-R-O-O-K-E-S, Mike Cannon Brooks is where he is on Twitter. And in the days uh, since the IPCC report came out, he's been brilliant to follow and I really wanted to put this episode out because as I spoke to you on Friday, you know, there's a lot of terrifying, terrifying, terrifying things in the IPCC report. And there rightly should be because it's a terrifying situation that we're in. But there's not a lot in there about possibility, I, I guess. You know, there's this messaging the, here's what we stand to gain. Here's what we can get. Here's what you and me and other people and perhaps people who've never had access to, you know, these kind of advantages might be able to achieve. There's so much possibility for our country of Australia with this incredible crisis ahead of us. In the words of Homer Simpson, this is a Christ-tunity. It is huge. And I just wanted to get Mike on to paint a bit of a picture about what is possible if we have leaders with the guts, if we have leaders that have the absolute, you know, fortitude and backbone to stand up and go, this is where we're going, come with me. Not to react to a poll, not to react in a way that they hope, oh, I won't get elected if I do that. Fuck that, dude. There is no time. There's, what, three election cycles between now and when the IPCC says we are fucked if we don't get to zero by now? That's like, it's literally, it's today we have to do something. So do something today and that starts with contacting your member of parliament that starts with making changes in your workplace. That starts with understanding that, realizing how strung out your supply chains are or where you get your energy from, realizing that those risk factors are now all economic risk factors as well. And the way to shore up those economic risks is to make the renewable energy choice. 
and the sustainable raw material choice. And yeah, it's all kind of the economics balance out and now's the time. Now's the time to make the move because the old way of doing things is just going to get more expensive. It really, it really is. We live in a country that is quite heavily reliant on coal export. If our leaders don't do something, the world will not want coal in an increasing amount starting last week. And look, in 10 years from now, I'd be surprised, you know, if we're still selling it. So we're going to have to figure out something else to do. There's a lot. There's a shitload. In fact, there's more available to us than we've been exploring right now. So that's what I wanted to talk to Mike about, to paint a picture of hope, to paint a picture of what it can be like, to paint a picture of what we might stand to gain, where we might choose to go if we all choose to go in this direction. Because we can go in the direction of fear and keep burning petrol and what does it matter, let's build sea walls and bunkers and hide. Or, or we can go, okay, how can we make a better version of what we do? How can we make a better version of, commu- of our community, of our society, of the way we live, of how equitable things are, of how much justice there is between socioeconomic classes if we move forward in a different direction? And that's what I wanted to get Mike on to do, to paint a bit of a picture about what's possible. Think about this stuff when it comes to election time. If the people that you want to vote for aren't talking about this sort of thing, don't vote for them. Don't vote for them. Find an independent, find a climate independent and vote for them. The time to vote for parties, I think, might be over. Vote for someone who cares. Vote for someone who gives a shit. Helen Haynes is a great example of that. She ran on a platform of climate sustainability and she's nailing it. She's doing great things for her community in the seat of Indo there. She's amazing. And I think that's going to have to be the way forward because everyone else is so, you know, they've got to dance with who they went to the formal with, you know. They got invited. They got to go might be the only way to short circuit this thing anyway enough of my bullshit let's get on with the man himself this is mike cannon brooks mate i'm so glad we had the time to do this we're recording this in sydney we're in an extended lockdown around covid19 i'm guessing you're at home i'm at home but i don't live in sydney anymore what happened i'm in the ring around sydney now i'm in the blurry area Ah. I, I technically live in uh, in Kangaroo, so in the southern highlands of Sydney, just just outside of the Greater Sydney area, which is causing much confusion because, like my kids' school, for example, is just outside the area, but a lot of the teachers come from inside the area, so we're in that sort of thing. Anyway, we're behaving as if we're locked down because it's just easier and fair enough to. Uh, I mean, re- regional New South Wales is obviously. I think everyone's petrified. I mean, like. I believe technically I can go to the pub as long as I sit down <laughs> and drink my beer, right, and have small tables and distancing and everything else. But then you're like, eh, I don't think I'm going to go to the pub right now. You know what I mean? Like, I'm sorry for the pub owner and you feel terrible, but you're also like, dude, the difference between Mittagong and Campbelltown is like 10Ks and people go back and forth all the time, et cetera. And so you're like, I don't, I don't feel like there's some magical safe barrier that you're outside of. So, you, you know, we just tend to stay at home and... Um, it's it's super hard. Yeah, but you guys, I'm sure you are doing okay. You've, everyone's all set up. I mean, I can't believe how lucky we are that we've got. It's tricky at our end, but there's people that have way way worse. People with you know oh. far smaller houses and and too many kids at home, and we're really lucky. 
mate, I have a job that I can do pretty effectively from home, which already puts me into the top half, third, probably what it's like 30, 40% of jobs can be done from home sort of thing. Yeah. That by its very nature reduces my movement and hence risk and everything else, right? And, and some people's jobs you just can't do from home. And so you're either not doing your job or you're out traveling and both of those are, are way more risky. So no, we're very, yeah, very fortunate to have the jobs and, and yeah. uh, place to do at the current moment. And it is, it is, don't get me wrong, Sydney is awful compared to how we normally have it. Sydney is awful. And I have people who I'm mates with overseas, as do you. There's mates of mine in Jakarta, mates of mine in India, mates in South Africa, and it is, it's the fucking walking dead. It's terrifying what's happening in other countries. Mate, we have uh, close to 8,000 employees at Atlassian now, somewhere around that number, and um, have lost a number of employees now in uh, various different countries. I won't go into detail, but um, yeah, part of my responsibilities is always to call the partner or the parent or somebody and um, those are never easy, you know, there's no easy part about those phone calls and and conversations and it's affected our Indian office very differently than it's affected a lot of our American offices and the Manila office, even the Netherlands, like it's just every three months it's a different part of the world and a different group that's affected in a different way, right, because of their unique circumstances and it's been an incredibly hard year and a half. That's that's a difficult thing but not every person who has your job would make that phone call. Why do you do that? Uh, I think it's important, right? Scott or I, he's uh, lucky buggers out on sabbatical at the moment. So, look, it's, I don't know. I think you just want to express your condolences as a, as a company, as a group. These people are part of the Atlassian family and have given some part of their life, their time towards our, our story and you feel the need to sort of say thank you for that to someone in their world, I suppose, and also to just be there for them at that difficult time, right? We, we, we you know, there are, are people and our family members and, and, and companies. Companies are hard. They're a collective of people trying to achieve something right together sort of in the same direction. And um, especially at these times, it's really, really difficult. You, you can't even normally, you know, if this happened, uh, staff members would go to a, a funeral or whatever sort of, you know, ceremony was there, depending on where you were in the world. That often can't happen right now. And so you have all these, you know, extra strange things. The least we can do is, is call someone and have a chat and say we're sorry and we're all thinking about them and share some stories about their time here and what they did and things that sometimes a partner doesn't know. But uh, look, it's, it's affected all of our employees in lots of different ways. I, I hope you understand how much that sets you apart from other people who do your kind of job because it would be easy to distance yourself from those people in your company and easy to not to set that phone call on someone else's agenda who is in the HR community or something like that. But it's a, it's a big deal that you do. And I, I want to tell you that it's not often that when people meet me, I'm generally the only shiny floor TV host in the room. People don't generally meet me next to Grant Denyer. People generally don't meet me when I'm standing next to Rove. I met you standing next to Jack Dorsey from Twitter. <laughs> like, I'm like, oh, I haven't really met a billionaire before. Oh, here's two. <laughs> so, we come in pairs. We come in pairs. <laughs> two of the only that aren't trying to go to space. Well, um, you want to talk about that? Like, I, I saw a quote the other day that maybe <laughs> UFOs are just 
space-loving billionaires from other planets. And I was like, <laughs> that's a great way to think about the world. They're just different crazies. Oh, that's a, that's a long rabbit hole. No, Jack, Jack's awesome. He's a very different thinker about the world and we don't spend enough time together given the geography, especially in the last couple of years, mm. year and a half. But um, no, he's a, he's a good dude and he's built, built some amazing things. Certainly someone that faces a lot of challenges at the moment as far as public discourse goes and his part and his role in it. Yeah, look, and he's, you know, Twitter and, and Square have both been companies that haven't shied away from difficult, difficult issues and difficult conversations. Mm. Doesn't mean they've always had them, I think, in the correct ways. But he's a big, he's a big thinker and um, he, he has a big heart. He has some, you know, sometimes people say he has alternative views. You know, he's a, he's a, he's a vegan like you are, right? And people are like, oh, be wary of that. And I'm like, why, why are people saying, you know, that's something they should be wary of, that he's like some sort of, I don't know, subversive in some way. I'm like, he, he's pretty comfortable with people making their own choices when, when you mm. chat to him. So, uh, no, he's good dude. He walks to work, for goodness sakes. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> like, like give give the guy a break. He walks to work. Yeah, and I think it, that's when people twist it around and be like, "Oh, so he's anti-car." I'm like, "We well, didn't. He didn't say that." Well, hang on. He he just make his own personal choice. That doesn't make him against something else, or you know, or making a comment on your choice. You can do whatever you want. You know, yeah. when you see people spending the kind of money they spend to fund private joyrides into space, what goes through your mind? Oh. Look, I think we should be careful. Funding the joyrides, yep. Yeah, I'm not sure I agree with that necessarily. I think there are people putting private money into non-economic public pursuits, right, which is a good thing in general, right? The difficulty will be our collectivism of those things, right? <laughs> Elon owns a rocket mechanism to get rockets up and bring it back now because he paid billions of dollars to build it. Um, some with government contracts, sure, but he's put tons of his own money in because he believes that we need to be a multi-planetary species and there's an interesting business to be built in getting things into space and putting them there, right? Cost per ton, cost per kilo to get things into space. That turns out to be a fascinating business. Other people will copy that. You know, I believe the cat, there's three people trying to do that in various ways and hundreds of other startups doing it in, in lots of different ways. So I think space is, is a business. It's, a, it's an economy area that people are starting to pursue now that they didn't for 50 years. So individual things, joyrides, yeah. I mean, like, was there any point to those? Nah, maybe a little bit of inspiration for some kids watching and stuff like this. It's not like we can't put people into space. We've done it a lot, right? But they're all milestones on a, on a different journey. It is interesting. They all have very different strategies, right? As yeah. far as I understand, Branson is literally pursuing space tourism, which I have a little less time for. My understanding is Jeff believes that we are going to exhaust the resources of the planet and hence need to get resources from uninhabited objects in space, be they asteroids or planets or whatever. So space mining and space resource collection and retrieval is his sort of goal, which is a viable strategy and understanding and you can debate whether we're going to exhaust all the resources or not but hey someone's trying to do something about that elon believes we need to be multi-planetary and so wants to go you know live on mars and as he says i want to die on mars but not on impact or whatever they're, they're very different views <laughs> one's almost trying to save the planet in some way in his own thinking i believe by not consuming all of the resources or, or getting enough resource consumption that the population can keep growing the other one is like sort of has a plan b for the planet but look hey 
the way I see it, they made their own money. They can spend it on that if they want. Maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. People can invest in them or not invest in them and maybe they'll fail. At least they're trying. I can't say that I had a similar look at it. I think it was uh, on that day, uh, like at least try and employ an engineer that hasn't recently watched an Austin Powers film and literally build a rocket that is the Johnson joke. Like, Yeah, (laughs) the the rocket design is very unfortunate. (laughs) I'll give you that. Um, I was surprised by someone in the media. The media coverage of the, the Blue Origin launch was terrible. Right? Like, there was like, oh, we can see them from inside the capsule waving through the tiny plexiglass window. I'm like, can we? I, like, couldn't you put a camera inside there or something? Like, you're doing all this amazing stuff and the coverage, there was like one camera. I'm like, yeah. man, I'm not big in the media, but wouldn't you have like lots of cameras and different things and put yeah. them inside? And, you know, and then Elon's like, you know, plays David Bowie in a Tesla fight across the planet. I'm like, ah, oh, there's someone that understands how to get media and coverage and, you know, that yeah. took a lot of effort and time and thinking, but man, it was resonant. Yeah, I think on the day that I that the the Bezos one went up, I was reading about. I was doing my exposure therapy, and I was I was reading about the Siberian permafrost and the rate that it's melting, and the amount of carbon that's being released into the atmosphere, and how many decades they expect that to be completely exhausted and that, you know, that it's like 1.5 times the amount of carbon right now and it's literally only maybe 30 years until it's all gone. Like, and then I'm like, and you're doing that today. Like, come on, man. (laughs) Well, that's, I mean, look, on the sheer carbon emissions of the rockets, yes, not particularly good. Can't say I agree with that. However, I believe most of them are not nearly as bad as people think because they run on all sorts of weird fuels and stuff that... You know, they don't run on diesel. <laughs> it wasn't so it wasn't so that, Mike. I think for me it was more like you're spending all that money, but look, there's a solution that will change billions of lives that we are desperately in need of here on the planet. Yes, you, you like you said, you're going into space. It's not like anyone's not done that before, but no one's figured out how to pull literally tens of thousands of tons of carbon out of the atmosphere at scale. Like there's a problem. Get on that, Jeff, and I'll I'll be your favorite fan. <laughs> Yes. Uh, I have no doubt that, uh, look, there are other things he could have spent money on. It's not that he's not spending money on those things and other people aren't, et cetera. You certainly run into a strange, my, my wife and I debate this a lot, philanthropic choices are really hard to question, right? And there's no sort of strict hierarchy of needs, right? If you say, I'm going to donate $100, what's the best thing I should donate it to? It's really hard to work. I think it's w- what you resonate the most with and then you hope enough people resonate with the right sort of broad set of things like I don't, I don't know how else you do it otherwise you're like hey you know homelessness is more important than cancer and you're like ah oh. like these are pretty tough choices i don't know how you would say that right and yeah. someone else would disagree with you and then you're like hey the climate is more important than you know even in the green community there's a whole like who cares about the dolphins let's save the planet and you're like i can kind of buy that at an abstract philosophical level but I can't question people who really care about dolphins and want to save them as an animal or species or something else. And I guess there's hope at the macro level that everybody's making the right set of choices. Otherwise, it's really hard to question that. Not that I'm, I'm not spending any money putting rockets in space. So, uh, <laughs> When did you first come to this kind of thinking? I mean, we could talk about, you know, how many zeros are in your bank account, but I'm not interested in that. I'm more interested in how you are guided by, you You come across to me, Mike, as someone who cares a lot and has a deep amount of empathy for people who aren't you, which is uncommon uh, for people who are in your job. And sometimes 
the insight, as we saw fabulously in the film The Social Network, sometimes the way a person feels about the world can emerge in the code that they write. And the way that you feel about the world eventually emerges in the product that you build in some way through the people you hire or the code you write or the policies you, you, you then put in. When did you start feeling this way about the world? When's the first time you remember feeling this way about the world and people who aren't you and don't have what you have? Um, I think that's probably a bit generous to me. Something my wife would probably say is not really that true. Um, I'm, I'm often not described as being particularly empathetic. Comes with the territory of being, a, trust me, mate, as, as someone who thinks a lot, it comes with the territory of being, of thinking a lot. Well, <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, this is a deep therapy session. Uh, look, I think, I think I believe a lot in fairness and I don't like unfairness for people that get advantages from unfair things, non-level playing fields. That's always been quite deep to my core, a sense of probity, you know, a sense of could someone else have done this? Are people succeeding on some sort of merits of their ideas or their ethics or their work or something and, and where things are not fair? You know, if government puts out a tender and someone wins it, I'm all for that, right? I assume that people judge that and, you know, there were some rules of the game and, you know, we were cheaper or better or faster or whatever. If they don't put out a tender, I'm like, oh, hang on, now I've got an issue with what you did here because, you know, no one else had a chance to bid or whatever the abstract thing is. And I think when it comes to things like the climate and the generalized sense of fairness, fairness is a really hard concept, right? Like it's, is my life fair? No, it's not fair. It's been incredibly lucky and I feel incredibly fortunate for a lot of things that have broken my way right like different things the ball bounces in different ways and things and so you kind of well what can I, what's the best thing i can sort of do to try to even that ledger and then when you think about the climate i just think that's it's incredibly unfair and we should be careful about what's unfair there i always think when we don't know something i think it's hard to say that it's unfair right we didn't know that smoking was bad for you for a long time once we discovered it was bad for you and we weren't sharing that information, that's when I start having an issue with, you know, hey, we had the research and the science, but we kept it to ourselves and didn't share it and kept selling cigarettes. I'm like, oh, now I have an issue with what you're doing because you didn't know that, right? And it's very the same when we get to coal or climate or any of these topics. Like we've, yes, had a growing understanding of the science and it's become slowly more agreed upon and more, you know, more and more experiments and more proof, more theories that stack up and add together as the price of scientific knowledge. But now that we know pretty clearly what we are doing and we have known for, one would argue, a couple of decades, and we know the things that cause that, now we have a problem with the fairness of those things, I think, and that's something that we can try to rectify. Were you like that in school? Do you remember being someone who, I mean, I think about G, who she's 17 now, but since she was, I met her when she was 10, uh, she's our eldest, and she's got this just profound sense of justice. Do you remember being that when you were a kid? Um. I don't know about a sense of justice. I don't remember in my childhood so many big issues. I kind of grew up in the 80s and 90s, right? And there weren't, it wasn't an era of giant social change, like, you know, maybe the 60s and 70s was. And then maybe, you know, recently we've had again, sort of, for whatever reason, topical things bubbled up. So it wasn't so much on the social side of things. I've always liked, I think great entrepreneurs are really good systems thinkers. So you think in terms of the system, all of the different causes and effects that, you know, this thing causes that thing that moves that thing. That It's like you have to think in, in these broad systems and you inject some change, which alters the course of progress, outputs, whatever, of the whole system. That's kind of what you're doing. 
and if you are a systems thinker, you need to be quite balanced and, and fair about things, I think, in a, in a really deep way. And you also like rules. I like rules and boundaries, right? Tell me the rules of the game. You've got 80 minutes, you've got to put, get the ball across the line more times. Okay, great. Now let's go strategize within those rules how we're going to win. Oh, I have no problem with competition and competing fairly, but you need rules to compete. You know what I mean? Like, and that, I don't know, it works in my head that way that life should be about some sort of boundaries and rules and like let's work out how to win within those rules and I don't know, yeah, I've always been that way. Do you remember how old you were when you first kind of became aware or heard about the concepts of either carbon in the atmosphere or the climate changing? Look, I think, I, I mean, I was peripherally aware about it for a long time, right? I remember watching Al Gore's documentary early which is one of those weird life arcs now. He's kind of become, become a friend of mine. I'm like, this is every time we hit, I'm like, this is fucking crazy. Like, it's one of those ones where you're like, ah, wow. Um, I remember watching his documentary and just being, that was a big revelation moment for me, I think, the um, Inconvenient Truth, the original one. And it really, I've thought about it a lot since because it really reflects on the power of storytelling, right? Storytelling is super important in all of this stuff. It's not, scientists are often bad storytellers. They live in a world of, of numbers and experiments and spreadsheets and models and papers. And it's, you know, they're very dense and hard to kind of communicate. That was one of the first things I can remember that really broke through in a storytelling way, trying to use charts and things to explain what this was going to be like and trying to show, you know, and that's where it got, you know, pilloried for all these scenes of typhoons and fires and whatnot. And like, well, that's actually what's going to happen. Yes, that was a fire that wasn't really, but they're trying to tell a story, an important story that people could understand and then hopefully take some action on. You know, that was the first real time where it crossed for me into a a deeper thought. And then it's really been the last five or six years, I suppose, as I understand, get to meet more people, have more resources and time to to spend on certain things and think a bit more deeply about, oh man, you know, you, when you're 20, you're just kind of thinking about, I don't know, not such deep legacy type thoughts, right? And when you get to 40, you're like, oh man, I better think about what I'm going to actually do here to, to try to leave a better world for other people or whatever it is. So it's certainly the last five years. And then the more you get into it, the more angry you get, and then you get hopeful and then you try to do something and then you can't go around all these loops. And uh, that's that's been a whole different journey. Tell me about about that. I mean, you're, you're a dad. I mean, I, you know, I wrote a book about going actually nuts once I started to grapple with what we're actually up against and what, uh, which was weird because I had a, a, a very intense uh, a reaction that it, it ended in kind of moments of psychosis, but it was a reaction to something that was very, very real. And the, the wild part was during Black Summer, like 18 months ago, uh, people were texting me all the time going, are you okay? Are you okay? Because like, we couldn't breathe in our house and we were 85 kilometers from the fire front, right? And people were like, are you okay? Are you okay? And I'm like, I'm actually completely fine because this is what I saw. <laughs> you know, I don't feel justified, but I'm actually completely fine because I expected this. And like, do you remember when the real gravity and the real weight of, oh shit, this is really broken and no matter what we do, we're fucked in a certain point, but how can we not be so fucked? <laughs> do you remember that that point? Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm lucky in that I don't have such strong reactions to stuff. Oh, you are. <laughs> and I, I often feel like I should, right? I should be. I tend to be confronted with problems all the time. That's kind of the nature of my job. Yeah. And I think, okay, great. 
accept the problem. Now let's go fix it. In the weird way in climate, it's like, we're either going to fix it or we're going to die trying. So at some level, if you're fatalistic, if we all die, did it really matter? I don't know. Some of the species will come along and maybe dig up our bones one day like dinosaurs and be like, what happened to these strange creatures? But I, I think we're going to try. And then you think, great, let's go go set about solving the problems. Understand it. Let's go solve it. That's sort of all I do every day in a weird way. And you have to grapple with the depth of the problem. You have to be empathetic and understand it. But when you reach the point of kind of, I don't know, freaking out and then get paralyzed, you've got to get yourself out of that. You know, there's a catastrophe coming. And if you just go, oh, man, there's a catastrophe coming. Everyone's like, okay, well, can we do anything about it? If the answer is no, well, then you go hug someone and watch, you know, the movies we send. Maybe it comes down and you kind of like that. Or you go, well, let's try and do something. And maybe we'll fail, maybe we'll succeed, but at least we'll probably we'll feel good about trying and we'll enough people do that, we're going to roll in the right direction. So I'm I'm pretty positive about it because the other option's sort of not worth thinking about. Like we're gonna we're gonna solve this problem. We have to solve this problem and we have to communicate to enough people. So lots of people are thinking about solving the problem. I'm not in any way in denial that I can solve it by myself. And it takes all sorts and all types and everything else. You know, I've said a few times, I think, yeah, I've got I've got four kids. I hope I'm not solving this problem or worried about it because I've got kids. I hope I worry about it because I'm a human being, right? Whether they're my kids or someone else's kids or someone in another country that you'll never meet or, or whatever, we should be aware that we come from a very wealthy country that's causing way more than our share of the problem, firstly, and secondly, has way more ability to solve it than a lot of other people. So, you know, my kids are going to be, Australia's not going to be the most affected. We're going to have a lot of effects, but we weirdly as a country have enough money to kind of mitigate a lot of those effects for a long time. There are a lot of other parts of the world that aren't going to be able to do that. So we should be way more empathetic and thoughtful about the effects and damage on them, actually, right? But let's get about trying to solve it or trying to do something or trying to move it forward, right? Because I sort of feel like it's the only path we can take. Tell me about the, uh, oh, that's the sound of a baby upstairs. Speaking of kids, the sound of a baby upstairs is pretty pissed off about nap time. <laughs> yeah, he's doing this thing at the moment. As speaking of cycles and loops of anger and and hope, he's going through this loop at the moment of only when my wife puts him to bed does he crack the shits when she leaves the room. I get the gold star. He's like, "Good night, daddy," and I leave the room and it's fine. But I, when she, he just punishes her, so but his his bedroom's right above mine. Then you think that's a good thing, and then you realize that means you do almost all of the putting down because it's easier for you to do, and then it'll flip, right? Every few months, it's like, <laughs> uh, look, if lockdown's given me anything, mate, it's more time with a baby who's growing up and changing every day. And I kind of, you know, parts of it are really shit, but being with this kid, these moments, he's just acceleration in his development every single day is just so astonishing from moment to moment. And to be mm. honest, so is the elder one. People underestimate how much a teenager changes, as you know. She's a different kid to who she was last month, completely, you know? Uh, but because they're so big, you think, oh, they've stopped developing. No, 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 no. How she feels, how she talks, the way she approaches things, the way she thinks about problems, the questions she asks at dinner, completely different to what they were a month ago. And the big kids change just as much. They're just changing. I think, I think the fascinating thing, I'm, I'm really impressed by people that are constantly looking for silver linings to things and how we won't get back to what we were like before as a society. But we'll, I would say, hey, let, let's start by the fact that it's pretty freaking mind-blowing that we're putting vaccines into our arms that didn't exist 12 months ago for a disease we didn't know about 18 months ago. Like, let's stop for science and be like, credit to those people. Yeah. Who like, that's pretty amazing that we've done that. And there's lots of vaccines, lots of teams, lots of people to... But 
when it's sort of we figure out how to get back to a normal-ish life, whatever we're going to call it, it won't be the same, but it'll be, you know, will we go back or will we learn from it as a society, as a collective, as people, as families, you know, oh man, I'm loving how much time I'm spending like this or doing this thing or I'm there's more quiet time or I'm interested to see. I don't, I don't know. I don't have an opinion. I think people are enjoying some parts of it yeah. almost guiltily, right? Like I yeah. don't feel like I should enjoy this, but I kind of do like yeah. this part of it. Man, this part sucks. It's okay to say this. This part totally sucks. Yeah. Take the job keeper and go and, go and ride a bike with your kids. It's, it's going to be all right. As a systems person, you might understand what I'm trying to say here. The thing that COVID-19 has done to our society, I used to be a roadie, Mike, for three years. I lugged PAs and lighting rigs all around Queensland and New South Wales. COVID-19 has taken the gaff off of the society that we live in. All the gaps are now there and we can no longer rely on people's goodwill or I'm here, I may as well, to fill those gaps in those systems. And they are gaping holes in some parts of our community. And you see it reflected in, you know, how only certain suburbs at the moment in Sydney are being so heinously affected by this Delta variant because of the inequalities that exist within our own city. You see it in different workplaces. Some people are just living paycheck to paycheck, you know, and other people are like, I've got 10 grand. Why don't you have 10 grand? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and, yeah. those things. And, it, and it's wild, but it also has given us an opportunity, as you mentioned, is like when, as we start the engine again, which is kind of a, a big reason of why I wanted to talk to you because elections on the horizon, the people I know are running, they're like, okay, well, let's start talking about it. And I wanted us to kind of speak about what are some things that we should look for. So we have this incredible chance now. It's like the, the Lego castle is broken to a thousand pieces. We could build the same castle or we could build something completely different. We've got the same blocks. Well, why don't we try something different? Like we have the opportunity to build back differently. And when you think of what opportunities we have ahead of us here, Mike, as far as what policies we could put in place to make sure our country, as you mentioned, will be safe and prosperous moving forward, what kinds of things do you hope people look for when it comes around election time? I think there's a lot of levels. Part of the problem with the, the whole climate challenge, let's call it crisis challenge entirety, it's such a massive systems problem with so many different inputs and outputs and characters and pushes and pulls. It is not simple. It's a very complex, complex and complicated problem. And those are the hardest type because everyone takes some simplification to justify their action or their thing. And then they don't, you know, you can't keep the entire thing in your head. It's very hard. In terms of people making choices and voting, the first thing I would say is, do they think they can make a difference? There are a lot of uh, structural challenges in the way that leadership is done in politics and we're trying to improve it constantly as a society, right? It's better than it was a while ago. It's worse in some ways. Thinking about your your voters mattering and thinking deeply about the issues and what people stand for is is really important, right? And when you say your vote matters, some people argue, and I'm not guiding people which way to go. Some people argue, hey, there's only two parties that can really get anything done, so you're choosing between those two. The rest is a wasted vote. Other people are like, no, 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 we should think about like having more independence makes a big difference. Everybody has to really make their own choice about actually whatever laws and rules we, we choose, they're a way that they're created and go through and people have their own views on that, right? And I think it's, it's really interesting, but they should think about how to make their vote matter is not just who they choose, but also structurally how they're thinking about that choice. Secondly, when it comes to the climate, I think they should think about it on a number of different levels, at least I do. There are local issues that are really, really important. Then there are kind of national issues and then there are international issues. And 
you should think about all of those levels. And let me give you some examples, right? On a more international level, our current climate policies are causing us a lot of challenge, right, as Australia. And people are like, well, that doesn't matter to me. Actually, it does because it affects, for example, our exports. If uh, carbon border taxes come in everywhere, so other nations are saying, hey, I'm going to tax goods that come in differently depending on their embedded carbon, which is, I would argue, a thing that they're totally allowed to do because they're trying to protect their world and their planet. It's one of the ways they can enforce opinions and views. You don't have to sell to them. It's your choice, et cetera. So our international policies affect our exports and will do increasingly over time. Japan's just announced they're investigating this. It seems like it's going to happen in some way over the next 10, 20 years. Therefore, Australia's choices matter because if you're in an export industry, it's going to affect your job at some level, right? So it actually, how do you bring that down to, to what my choices are? When you think about that, Australia has a lot of opportunities, right? Exporting opportunities in this world. I say it repeatedly, in a carbon-constrained world, Australia should be a winner. Am I choosing or trying to choose someone or some group or some whatever that is embracing that opportunity for Australia or is it just all fear tactics about what we stand to lose, right? And fear is a lot easier to generate than hope, right? Vision and possibility are really hard. It is much easier to get elected, to scare people into action (laughs) or scare them into inaction, I guess, than it is to inspire them into action. And so we should... We should remember that. It's a lot more difficult, right? But the opportunities for Australia in this world are immense on an international level, on the exporting level, and go all the way to the other end of the spectrum. We will need to, I believe, decarbonize our economy over the next 20 years. That, if done right, creates a tremendous uh, number of jobs, millions of jobs. It creates tremendous economic opportunity for day-to-day things. There are a lot of plans in America, we're trying to generate some in Australia, about what decarbonisation means for individuals. And that's two ways, right? If you're going to decarbonise your household, um, you're putting solar panels on the roof. It's a classical example in Australia. More people in Australia sleep under a solar panel than anywhere else per capita in the world because we've got a perfect climate for it and we've got very sensible regulatory policies, by and large, actually, about installing panels on your roof, et cetera. So a lot of people have embraced that opportunity because it saves them money. It not only saves them money, that that's well, how does it affect me? It generates jobs because all the high vis jobs of people putting the panels on and quoting on the work and you know driving the trucks around and everything else that creates economic activity, which is really positive. So if we think about decarbonisation broadly put, the two forces of that are it will reduce our cost of living, hence make our economy more competitive, more jobs and goods that can be created here. That's a good thing for everybody. Your electricity bill going down is just a simple example of everybody's household running cheaper, right? They've got more money to spend on other stuff, restaurants, whatever. And then on the second level, it will generate a ton of economic activity for a long time. If we said we're going to decarbonize every household, there's 20 years worth of economic activity of heat pumps and electrical appliances and solar panels and everything else. And so you're thinking, okay, am I, am I voting for someone that's leaning into that and going to create that opportunity for me, jobs for me, jobs for my friends, my family, my children, you know, we can create a lot of economic opportunity. And that's just purely local. That's not exporting power. That's not doing anything crazy. That's just locally. That's going to result in a more competitive economy and create jobs. These are good things. So there's a lot of issues here to think about, right? And I would just, I don't know, I could go for a long time. <laughs> Avoid the simplicity of green or not green or some sort of simple thing and, and think about the opportunities it creates for you and our people just using fear. The last one I would say is, are we... 
understanding, you talked about systems thinking, our actual role in this. Because often some of the fear is something we have no control of, right? The best example there is our customers who are buying our coal around the world. We have no influence on them. Bugger all. They're going to stop buying our coal whether we like it or not. And they will. <laughs> Every model shows they will. The more biased models show it's going to be a long time. Probably the more biased in the opposite direction show it's going to be incredibly short. The reality will be somewhere in the middle. They will stop buying our coal. That industry will disappear. This is terribly hard for the people in that industry and we need to support them. Absolutely, we need to put in transition plans. We should be empathetic towards their transitions. However, we have no control over those customers buying our stuff. If anyone tells you we do, it's bullshit. We have none. They will stop buying it. You can debate the model on how long it'll take and what'll happen. Sure. What we have control over is what we can do, what we can generate, new things we can create. We don't have control over some of those things. And so the fear of the things that could happen to us, et cetera, it's not very useful. And I hope that people are some way educated. Again, there's a lot of groups out there trying to broadly educate consumers. I would say the one thing I've seen in the last five years is the level of public education about these issues, driven by kids marching in climate rallies and driven by people being aware. And, you know, I, I always think one of the best education devices is literally getting a solar panel. As soon as people get a solar panel, they start looking at some app on their phone and they're, and they're like, wow, my power went up. What happened? They turn on the air conditioner and they learn about how all these systems in their house operate that they never thought of before. They just turn the light on and pay the bill and, you know. So education is incredibly important, understanding how it all sort of flows together and making informed choices. Sorry, probably went too long there. No, no, don't be sorry at all. I remember my brother, he works in Detroit. He works for the Ford Motor Company He at the... Uh, bleeding edge of uh, the, the non-petrol-based vehicles that they're working on. He used to work here in Melbourne. He's an incredibly smart man. Uh, he used to live in, in China, in Shanghai. And I, I remember calling him up in, in despair one day. He goes, oh, man. I, he said, I watched the Indian prime minister visit here. He said, they flicked a switch and the sky went blue. They just said, okay, that's it. All the coal-fired plants, it's in the middle of winter, coal-fired power plants went off on a Thursday. The guy was arriving on a Saturday. Coal-fired power plants went off, no heating in government buildings for 36 hours. Boom, sky was blue for the weekend when the person visited. By Tuesday morning when they left, boom, brown again. And he said, they'll do the same for good one day. They'll just flick a switch and that will be it. There'll be no transition. It'll be like, this is what we're doing tomorrow. And everyone will go, yeah, hail China. And that's it. <laughs> that's it. Because they're a collective of society. They're like, brilliant, off we go. And he goes, and... and our country will have absolutely nothing to do with it. <laughs> It'll just be gone. We've seen how they flicked some switches recently. I mean, look, that's a, that's a super complicated topic, right? But on the climate generally, although their economy is industrializing fast still and people coming up the, you know, the income curve and everything else, so they've got a lot of very complicated large-scale forces to deal with and very unique, let's say, Confucian philosophies about how to deal with it, very different than our sort of Greek uh, philosophically-based society. But when it comes to the climate stuff, they're actually pretty, pretty far ahead. Like they're in the media often panned. Man, they're installing, you know, solar and other things, uh, high voltage DC, long distance transmission, all sorts of stuff in massive, massive quantities because it's cheap and they need the power. I'm not sure it comes from a deep view of things. I'm sure there's some civil unrest and health issues. And yes, the pollution and everything else is a part of it. But my understanding is they're, they're, you know, often underestimated as to how much green technology they're both creating and in actually building the solar. They see it as an economic opportunity. 
um, electric vehicles, they're doing incredibly well. So there's a lot of things that if you take the the biases and the preferences, you know, agree with China, don't agree with China, just take it all, just look at it abstractly. Green energy, electric vehicles, manufacturing, et cetera, they're um, pretty hard to say they're doing a, a really bad job compared to some of the things we're doing. Yeah, someone told me not long ago, there's, um, oh, there's a Tesla, there's Fisker Karma, there's what, in uh, China, there's 700 EV startups. <laughs> it's like... It's the biggest auto market in the world. When it comes to other opportunities, you mentioned kind of local high-vis blokes on your roof, kind of the tradie ute level industry. What about, and this is my favorite word, I found it, the guy that leased me my e-bike that I fang around with Wolf on, he used to be in yellow goods. Do you know what they are? Okay, if you go down to like your big box store and you buy a fridge or a dryer or a washer or a freezer, what do you call that? White goods. White goods, all right. What do you call the gigantic fucking trucks that roam around the super pit in Kalgoorlie? Oh, they're yellow goods? They're called yellow goods. They lease them. They buy them and they lease them back to the company. So he used to work in that. Now he works, he's transitioned to e-bikes. Love it. But what about those big industries? Those massive, massive things that Australia does rely on quite a bit, like these humongous trucks as big as my house or enormous steel plants and things like this. Like, where does the possibility there, Mike? Yeah. When we say we're going to decarbonize the economy, we should break down the economy. Right. So we should say we're going to have to decarbonize residential. That's your house, my house, everybody else's house. Right. And mm-hmm. decarbonizing that has a whole lot of strategies and ways to do it, ways to fund it, finance it. Finance is incredibly important in this entire equation, by the way, no matter where you're looking at it. We're going to have to decarbonize the broad sectors of our economy. And that's different in each different sector. Right. Some of them are the same strategies as residential. If you're running a shop, it's pretty similar. If you're running a manufacturing plant, Depends on what you're manufacturing and how electrically based it is already, et cetera. Most of them will follow a broad path of electrification, which becomes a generic layer that you can then green, I guess. And it's also very cheap. The more things electrify, the cheaper electrons get, kind of. But it will be different for everything. We have to think about industrial change. Um, I'm a big uh, supporter of a group called Beyond Zero Emissions that does a lot of work with industrial precincts, industrial regions. We have to think about retooling whole regions. Industries are often tied to regions because historically they were geographically located there, so grew up around it. You know, you can think that you mentioned Detroit, the car industry in Detroit, all of the parts manufacturing kind of went one ring around there, right? So it was a geographically located industry. So if you're going to transition an industry, you need to think about the geography and the region at the same time. Um, That's incredibly important. If you're talking specifically about yellow trucks and mining, the decarbonization of the world is a massive opportunity for mining. If we separate out fossil fuel extraction and mining, a huge amount of Australia's mining industry is not doing it. And they often get painted with one brush. And I always say, hang on a second, let's slow down. The decarbonized world requires iron ore, steel, zinc, copper, silver, you know, rare earth metals, gold, uh, nickel, a lot of things that go into panels and batteries and electric vehicles and construction of all the things that are going to require to decarbonize are resources that Australia creates out of the earth. It doesn't create, sorry, we extract. So for the mining industry, that is a huge, huge, huge opportunity for us. There will be parts of the mining industry, largely the three fossil fuel sectors, that will be incredibly challenged by that because their customers will start disappearing. So if you're a mining company, you'd be moving your investments, as we've exactly seen them do, by the way, away from fossil fuel sectors into 
other sectors are likely to be more profitable, lithium or nickel, copper or whatever else. If you're a pure fossil fuel miner, you have some more issues, right? You have uh, an incredibly challenge for your corporation. When you see these transitions happening, I mean, like I'm watching The Bachelor last night, right? Uh, yeah, I didn't. I didn't watch the basketball. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> he's reading about Jock. I was like, I don't. I don't think he's watching the same thing I am. But no, he no. didn't just play well. So man, I've got to got to support the team, man. Got to do what I can on the night. Get those numbers up, Mike. So I'm watching The Bachelor last night, and I'm seeing ads from Woolies. I'm seeing ads from Telstra. You know these gigantic blue chip companies that humongous super funds invest. You know boomer retirement plans in going. We'll be carbon neutral by 2025. You know, these huge, huge companies. Now, part of me is like, oh, good, that's free market seeing their customers see this as important and they're they're going, okay, we need to signal this and we need to message this and we need to take it seriously. But another part of me is like, they've had to do that without government support. Like how different could it have been if they had been like, let's, let's mandate this and he will support you. Like, I wonder if there's a place to look for around that kind of support for other businesses and smaller businesses to transition besides the gigantic grocery duopolies and huge telcos. Look, I think often we look to government. Government can set policy settings. Government can certainly tilt tables in certain directions and things like that. There are certain things that government can't do, right? So we shouldn't look to them to solve all the problems. There's certainly a lot of things they could do to make it easier for us all to solve problems. I'm not saying they have no role to play here. But for some of those areas now, we should be careful that they've moved well beyond sort of government support, right? Any large-scale business that is embracing a big part of a group called RE100 and a big advocate of what they're trying to do, which is to move businesses, corporations, large and small, but generally focusing on large, to 100% renewable energy. But it's a pledge and then a series of programs to fulfill that pledge and work to moving through. At last joined a while ago, we now run on 100% renewable energy. That sort of movement is really important. But let's be clear, most businesses join that because it's going to save them money, which is fine, right? It's a good outcome, but most of them aren't being altruistic. They're joining to save themselves money in the long term. Now, that creates many more buyers for renewable energy, which you know tips supply and demand, and that moves the whole thing in a good direction. So that's why it's it's really, really important. I think we have about 40% maybe now, 50% of the ASX market cap have joined RE100. And so they're buying and whether they've pledged, whether they've moved there or had their pledges come through, et cetera, that, that is all trending in the right direction. And they're doing it to make their businesses more efficient, more competitive, uh, which is a good thing. Customers can drive that movement in a long way, right? Customers making choices, choosing your bank, choosing your insurance company, choosing where you put your super, choosing where you invest your funds, choosing which suppliers you use based on some sort of credentials is really important. That does make a difference for sure. We've seen that in the climate movement. The finance part of it is a really, really, really important uh, part of how the world operates, but actually the individual choices can can make a difference there. There are some great ethical super funds in Australia. There are some great banks and corporations that have chosen certain parts that are different to other people. For sure, if they're doing it to attract customers, I'm all for that. Like That's fine as long as they're living up to their promises. Net zero is where life gets a little complicated. A lot of companies have made net zero pledges, as have a lot of nations. And that's good. It's a good step. Every state in Australia has a net zero by 2050 pledge, which is weird that we don't have one federally, but I won't dwell on that. Companies can make those pledges. 
if you're making a pledge for your company to go net zero by 2050, there are two things you should look at as a consumer or as a company. Firstly, do we have a plan behind that pledge? And is that plan comprehensive? So Alassian is a member of the SBTI. So we joined the Science-Based Targets Initiative, which I would argue is the strictest group anywhere in the world about making those plans. It takes years to get your plan approved by the SBTI because they care and they go through with a pencil and they check what your maths is and what you're doing because it's very easy to pledge. Yeah, yeah, we're going to be net zero. Oh, we'll do so about next year because 2050 is a long time off, right? So firstly, do you actually have a plan? You have a pledge, starts there, desire, direction. Then you kind of make a plan. Then you start fulfilling that plan, right? You start executing through it and doing different things. And does that plan count? This is the same for nations or corporations. Does that plan count what's broadly called scope three, right? Scope three is not that complicated, actually. If you blur some of the details, scope three is about, do you care about your customer's use of your products and do you care about your suppliers? And that is really, really important when it comes to our economy and our choices and any different companies' choices and their pledges to go net zero. If you're a net zero, but you're not counting scope three things, I, I call bullshit. You're not net zero, right? Your impact of your company is not net zero. <laughs> You'll say, "Ah, oh, I've measured these operations, and my, you know, my this building's fine, but you know, I'm I'm shipping coal to someone else." You're like, "Well, hang on, are you accounting for the coal that you ship to them? No. Are you counting the transportation? No. Well, then, if you didn't make that, there would be no transportation. It wouldn't be a problem. So you should count that. You know, the last part about net zero pledges, we should be careful, and this is more at the national level is do we have milestones and markers that meet up with any part of the science? So quite a lot of the large oil and gas companies have net zero pledges, which gets to be very volatile here, which have been investigated and are not compatible with the spirit of net zero. <laughs> because if you have, yeah, 2049, we're terrible and then we're going to fix it in 2050, the planet won't work like that. No. And so we have to think about the total amount of emissions between now and 2050 is a very different concept than at 2050, I happen to have a thing that's balanced at zero. And that's really, really important when it comes to pledges and people like the SBTI, there's other groups out there that are really good. Um, it's part of the UN climate impact movement. Just think about all those. But, but anyway, I'm off track again. Your choices as a consumer make a huge difference and... When we're looking at national net zero pledges, it's an issue that's sure to come up in the election, pretty sure. But I think that that's the thing. We you should know, think about how that those affects all yeah. of those things go into this this random pledge. If we make a net zero pledge and we tick a box, it doesn't mean much. Yeah, I think for sport, for sport now that Barnaby is back on the field, uh, for sport journalists like to ask him about 2050, just because it's you're guaranteed to get a fun three minutes that don't answer the end. You know, just unusable three-minute filibuster soundbite that no one can ever rebroadcast outside of that particular show. But basically what you're saying is you can't, and I remember when I was a kid when I figured it out, so hang on, I could be, when I got told about confession, I was like, all right, so I could be a cinema whole life, make sure I confess on my deathbed, and then I'll be sweet. Fuck. That's a good parallel, yes. That's a really good parallel. <laughs> away we go. I'm away. So we're talking like by October 2049, you can't be like, oh, well, better sort this out. <laughs> like, it, like, So when people say, we pledge to be net zero by 2050, you know, it's like, 
what you're saying is that, so what does that look like in 2025, in 2030, in 2035, in 2040, in 2045? Like, and if we haven't been hitting these things that have been these signposts and these waypoints that have been scientifically proven to be like, you've got to be here by then, then there needs to be accountability around that. Yes, there needs to be a plan. Like you yeah. need to have a plan. And if someone's making a pledge without a plan, it's, you know, it's like, hey, I'm going I'm to lose a lot of weight this year. Cool. How are you going to do that? Oh, I haven't thought about that yet. I'm just really committed to doing it. Okay. Are you going to do more exercise? <laughs> like, There's lots of ways to do that. You could say I'm going to do a lot of exercise or I'm going to eat better or I'm going to do both or I'm going to change some lifestyle factor. I'm, you know, I'm going to, whatever you're going to do. But if you don't have a plan, then I, I, you know, I question your pledge. When we come to net zero, we need exactly that. We need to know what the plan is behind it. And this is where the the soundbite era of like net zero or not and whatever, it's not so helpful is like the plan behind it is way more important. Any regulation we have or put in place, any legislated target must have milestone targets for me. It must have, okay, we're going to be so much better in five years and so much better in 10 years and must have ways in which that is done. And then you need to think through the plan. Okay, well, what are the sectors? What are we doing first and second? How's this going to be challenging? You know, what do we have solutions for today? What do we not have solutions for today? Most of it we know how to do. There are lots of any, Barnaby just, man, makes me mad. His favorite talking points, just for any listeners out there, I guess, talking to listeners, A, he's like, I don't know how much it's going to cost. Firstly, you're a leader. You're the deputy head of the country. If you don't have a plan, go get one. Go tell someone to make one. Go make your own. This is called leadership, buddy. It's very basic. Uh, so for him to be like, oh, I don't know, who, who does he expect to come up with the plan? I'm not sure if he's not doing it as the government that someone else is going to do this. Secondly, there are lots of plans out there. There's lots of really great plans with really good costings and science and research behind them. There are tons of plans for getting Australia to net zero by 2050. Really good thought through scientific ones, not sort of even one might argue politician ones that have a lot of editing between the time they leave the, the scientists and the researchers, then they go through the bureaucrats and then they get to the politicians who then edit it to make it look good and polish it and give it a name and how it goes. But there are lots of plans. Most of those plans, the next point is it's not costed. You know how much it's going to cost. No, we do know how it's going to cost. A lot of those plans are very well thoroughly costed. Most of them show it is a benefit to the Australian economy. I can't say all, but the vast majority... 90% plus, I think I'm fairly safe in saying, of those plans show it is a benefit for the Australian economy to move to net zero. And lots of plans about how we would go do this. So it's total BS if anyone's fitting the line. We don't know how much it's going to cost. We don't have a plan. Like, that's all crap. That's just willful choosing to not go and read the work of lots of other passionate and smart Australians who've already done that. And there's lots of them. You can go make another plan, but it'll show the same thing. I think we're now at a point, Mike, where maybe in the right era when they were pitching the carbon tax and, you know, the, the economic argument was slightly different. But now it's a no, it's absolutely black and white that it is cheaper today. It is the economically sound thing to do this today. Yeah. And it, it was a, it is a, a sunk cost that you're never going to get back if you invest down the other side of things. And which kind of blows my mind that the, federal economic rationalist party are the ones that go, well, no, we can't possibly do this. No, 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 no. 
yet the very same side of that politics in the particular state that I live in and you live in goes, actually, no, this is exactly what we're doing. Uh, <laughs> there's this wild disparity. It does kind of blow, blow my mind. There's net zero, Mike. So that's carbon neutral. And then there's carbon negative. Once mm-hmm. we start getting to into decarbonisation, is there, oh, sorry, carbon sequestration, et cetera, is there economic possibilities in Australia for that? Uh, there are. Broadly put, what the carbon tax was trying to do, if we zoom out here, was put a price on carbon, right? And we should be clear what that means. Carbon is a cycle like water, right? We send it up into the air and then it comes back down sort of like water. Let's blur our eyes at science. That's roughly how it works. It's a big cycle. Whatever we put into the CO2 will eventually get absorbed into trees and will eventually those trees will die in animal matter and become coal and then diamonds as it gets more compressed. It just takes millions and millions of years and we kind of don't have that long. So the more we're extracting coal, which took millions of years to put there and burning it into in seconds up into the atmosphere, we have to work out how to reverse that or put it back in some way, shape or form. The reason we talk about a price on carbon in the generalized sense is it's one of those externalities that we did not cost when we created a lot of those businesses and industries. We, we didn't realize there was an actual cost. There's a healthcare cost of having coal mines and coal power plants, for example, that is in that price. There is an environmental cost of the, the damage, the heat. You know, It's just the person who creates the thing and the person who pays the bill aren't the same. And so what they're trying to do is price this such that if the damage costs $5, the creator of the thing that causes the damage eventually pays the $5 in some form of price, tax, whatever it is. The mechanisms for doing that, there are many, many mechanisms. That price is some sort of a market broadly. There's lots of ways. Now, that market can be a tax, which was sort of whatever the original thing that got labeled as the carbon tax, but actually wasn't a tax. And you know that, that's an episode of Australian history. We had it for a short period of time and then it got rolled back. Whether that's a carbon border tariff or something else of Europe. What Europe is saying is, and America is following right behind them, so is Japan and all the big markets are going to do some version of this. When two goods come into my economy, I'm going to charge one of them more than the other one based on their embedded carbon because I have to suffer and pay for those effects at some point. So that's creating a market for it. It's just not price per ton. In that case, it's priced on the internal good. That'll create a tax and then that'll go to, you know, seawalls and all sorts of other things that will need to be paid for, right? There are other ways, which is just to pay people to sequester carbon and then have in some sort of market, which is paying people for planting trees, using land in certain ways, um, literally pumping carbon dioxide into the ground, uh, which is, I don't think it's going to happen, but people trying it, doing it sort of, pulling carbon out of the air and putting it into certain products. So for example, I'm building something in Sydney and we're looking at lots of different forms of carbon-neutral cement. And one of the things they do is take various heavy carbon products, come from certain places and embed it into the cement, and then you put it into the building and hopefully it sits there for a long time. Right. We will need to work out the pricing of carbon. That should be good for Australia because we have lots of abilities to store that carbon in lots of different ways. Agricultural practices is a good one, right? Regenerative agriculture. Uh, my wife is a massive fan of regenerative agriculture. And I, I love the, the concept is agricultural methods that put more carbon into your soils and store it there rather than agricultural methods that trample the soil and hence um, with tilling and other things send the, the carbon into the atmosphere, right, in dust form and other, other forms. Currently, 
Farmers do it because they get better products. They get better soils. They're actually also benefiting society with those better soils by sequestering more carbon, but they don't get paid for that at the moment. There will likely be a world where they get paid for that in some form. Now, how we measure that is going to be incredibly difficult, right? People say, oh, I did some, I did my farming in this manner, so I should get paid, you know, $10 an acre. Can we prove you did that? If you go till the soil next month, then you just paid them. How do we? So we're going to have to figure all this out as a society. Will there be some sort of market for carbon? Yes, broadly, whether that's water tariffs or taxes or pricing or just a literal market mechanism. Will that benefit Australia? Yes, I, I believe it should. We have all the opportunities, the land, the space, the agricultural community. The grand irony of the Barnaby issue is that his constituents should be one of the biggest beneficiaries of this entire equation if we set up policy levers correctly, uh, which he could presumably do on behalf of his constituents because it's kind of his job. Just before we get to the back end of our chat with Mike Cannon-Brooks, I just wanted to pop in and um, let you know about the other podcast I'm doing at the moment with James Matheson. James and I worked on Australian Idol together a long time ago, and so we decided to make a TV show called Idol Australians. And uh, it basically explores the bits of Australian culture and Australian history that you might have missed. And uh, this week we talked to the creator, the author of the Australian Women's Weekly Children's Birthday Cake book. Now, this is a book that you have eaten a birthday cake from, I guarantee it. And she was amazing to talk to. But we we started talking about the, uh, the power of birthdays and what birthdays look like and what birthdays look like now. And here's just a little bit from that. To celebrate their 18th, the girls, they all borrowed the cars because they've all got their peas and they did a, uh, a a drive-by convoy where they were just all shouting out the window, happy birthday to their friend. I don't know how many cars. There must have been 10, 20 cars. For an 18-year-old, people just driving past and not stopping and not talking to them for the 18th birthday is an absolute nightmare. For me at 43, that isn't a dream. That is my absolute fantasy you can find idle australians wherever you find your podcasts idle australians just search for that now you might hear an ad here or we might go straight back to mike let's see what happens hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little so naturally when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Very briefly, you mentioned it, and I know you're in the game. So <laughs> what are the opportunities and what are the possibilities that we may want to be looking for as far as government support around? Because we are already an energy exporter. We export energy in the form of coal to be burned or gas to be burned sure. or in some cases oil to be burned. How does our energy export future look in a world that doesn't burn fossil fuels? 
Australia has been an energy exporter for a long time. All we are doing is exporting different resources with different techniques and methodologies that we have today. That will probably take three forms. If you add those three forms together, I'll get into what they are in a second. If you add those three forms together, it is a much larger export industry than our current fossil fuel industry. So that is wherein lies the opportunity. That existing fossil fuel industry will die, right? It is unfortunate. Industries rise and fall. We're well adapted to it as a society. and We should manage that rise and manage that fall. The worst thing we do is stick our head in the sand and pretend it's not going to fall because that's when you really run into a brick wall. That, that hurts a lot. But as the fossil fuel industry peters away, the challenge that economies and countries have is they don't have something to replace it. We are so lucky that we have an amazing opportunity to replace it with something even bigger if we could just kind of grab it and figure out the, the levers to actually get people to understand it. So they go, okay, what are we exporting? What resources? We're not going to export coal and gas and, and oil anymore. What are we going to export that's energy? Well, we're fundamentally in some way going to export our renewable resources. We have incredible renewable resources, uh, sun, wind, hydro, lots of other things, but let's just stick with sun and wind as the main forms. We have so much of it. Why? Well, we have a lot of wind due to the Indian Ocean. We're in a very lucky place on the planet. Kind of the way the planetary winds work, slam into our country. This turns out to be really helpful. That's a super simplified version. Please, meteorologists, don't. That's <laughs> my massive ultra simplification, but we're in a good spot for wind generally. Uh, we're also in a good spot for sun. I think we kind of all know that. Sunburned country with windswept plains, by the way, we put into the poem. We have a lot of sun that falls on our country that's very consistent. And we have a lot of space with nothing in it. That's largely what you need for solar panels, right? And then the question is becomes great. How do we get it to other people? This has long been Australia's challenge. I sit on the National Brand Council with a lot of other folk. I'm like the kid in the corner being like, I don't deserve to be at this table. Um, but it's a fascinating group of people looking at what, what the brand of Australia means from lots of different aspects. And, you know, if you look at the history lessons and everything else, like we discovered wool, you know, the whole built on the back of a sheep's back because it was something we could export. We could put it on a ship that was made of wood. It didn't sink the ship because it wasn't really heavy. Exporting iron ore on a wooden ship would have been really hard, right? It didn't sink the ship and it lasted. <laughs> so by the time it got back to England, which is largely where we exported our early stuff, it was still kind of wool, right? You could make stuff and we could make money out of this. And we had space and sun to have lots of sheep running around and we kind of put this together and made an economy. We export industry. We've been an exporter our entire lives as a nation, right? I would point out my day job at Atlassian. I'm a manufacturer and an exporter, right? Don't have a lot of ScoMo and Hi-Viz cutting factory ribbons, but you should do. You just do it on Zoom, right? We, we manufacture stuff and we export it, just like Australian industries classically always have. So how are we going to export the sun? How are we going to export wind? This is the fundamental challenge. I believe there'll be three ways we end up doing it. One will be directly, so that's by wire, some kind. One will be via a hydrogen byproduct, probably, or hydrogen itself, some sort of gas that we can create and talk about why hydrogen is important. And the third will be via better, higher value goods that we export. Wire is, is something I'm very invested in. It's the cheapest way, if we think about it correctly. Um, that is the Sun Cable Project is one of the example projects that I'm involved in, a Sun Cable company. That's building the Australian ASEAN PowerLink, which is a very large solar farm in the Northern Territories up in the Barclay. 
that is connected to a very long extension cable with a lot of super smart science and engineering and system design at a crazy big level. And that extension cord is going to Singapore, right? And we are literally going to ship, think about it, blow your eyes at the physics again. Sorry, I've now pissed off the physicists. Assume we are shipping electrons from the Northern Territory, putting them in a battery to shift the time when we need to, a big battery, and then sending them to Singapore. And you're like, this is crazy. Why would we do this? Turns out it's very cheap. It's actually a really affordable way to get energy from Australia to there. Could we have 50 of those cables? Absolutely. Right? And does that cable run in two ways? Yes, it does, by the way. It runs in both directions. And there's lots of other externalities of this project that make sense. But that is one way Australia will export solar energy is literally just capture it and send it down a wire just like we do when it comes from a big coal plant up in Willowawang, uh, up in, you know, uh, Lithgow Way, that coal power plant sends it to my house or well, other people's houses down a wire. It's no different to that. It's just different plant, bit of a bigger wire, a lot more science and modern engineering and other stuff. Uh, goes under the oceans. Guess what? Our internet connections go under the oceans all the time, so we kind of know how to do this. Just putting little pieces together. So that's one way we'll export energy, and hopefully it's helpful because it'll it'll make actually nations more interconnected. Um, the simple way to think about wires is. If we had wires that could go halfway around the planet and we could build them cheaply enough, we wouldn't need anything else because half the planet is in the sun all the time. So <laughs> whichever half is in the, in the sun, if it could send the power to the other side where people are asleep and they have to turn their lights on and their air conditioners and their everything else, we'd be done. We'd be gold, right? So if we could make a long enough wire to go all the way around the planet, then we would just, it would always be sunny in some part. That's one way we could do exporting of energy. It's a very simple Still a little out there way. Second is hydrogen. You will have heard a lot probably of conversation about the hydrogen economy. One of the other ways to capture solar or wind energy, renewable energy, is to then use that energy, which is very, very cheap. Uh, we haven't really gone into the financing of all this stuff, but it's extremely cheap energy. You then have to shift its time. What we're doing with the cable is shifting the time via time zones, right, by distance. What you can do with hydrogen is shift its time by putting it into a form that it is transportable or movable or pipeable, which is a gas. Hydrogen can be generated with electricity and water. So if you're H2O plus CO2, you put energy through it, et cetera, you get out hydrogen and oxygen separating with energy, the water, et cetera. It takes a lot of energy to do so. It's quite inefficient, actually but it generates hydrogen, which is a gas that can then be burned. And when you burn hydrogen, you don't get CO2. You get other, you know, things, hydrogen and stuff. You add the oxygen to the hydrogen, maybe you get back water. Anyway, it's not bad for the planet when you burn the hydrogen. So that is the second way we will do it. And there's a lot of hydrogen byproducts, uh, liquid ammonia. There's other forms of hydrogen and things in that whole supply chain. That is an emergent and potential economy. If you've been watching the Olympics, you've seen all of the Toyota fuel cell vehicles running around with potentially hydrogen in them and stuff. That's never going to happen. If you ask me, that's total bullshit. There was a world where we thought cars would run on hydrogen. Now, I think that's a bad idea because it's basically strapping a giant bomb to your car that's far more volatile. <laughs> and uh, electric vehicles have come down in price so much that the, I don't think you know residential vehicles running on hydrogen is probably not a good idea. However, hydrogen for lots of other uses, industrial, power plants, various other forms is is not a bad idea. So that's the other way we'll export energy is through hydrogen, uh, the hydrogen economy. 
there are big debates about how big that is for Australia, how big that is for the world. I don't think we know yet. It's going to be big. Is it ridiculously giant or just very big? We will see. Lots of people pursuing that path. Um, the third way we will do it is by cheaper things, higher valued manufactured goods that we export. Why is that? Well, we have so many renewable resources. We should have, as we used to have in the 70s and 80s, the lowest cost of power in the world. Australia should right now have the cheapest power in the world. We have some pretty cheap power, actually, in a lot of places, although we all complain about our bills. But it should be far cheaper than it is, and it should continue to get cheaper. One of the ways to make power cheaper is to be able to create it cheaply, hence renewables. We have lots of ways of creating cheap power. And secondly, to have more usages of it, because the more demand there is, the price will continue to go down because people will build more and more generation resources and price continues to go down We can use the wires more, et cetera. If you've got very cheap power, that's one of the biggest input costs to an economy is the cost of your electricity in a generalized sense. So industries and jobs will move here that are highly power dependent, and we will be able to perform that industry cheaper than somebody else. And hence, we will export that good and that will be effectively exporting energy because that energy would have been used somewhere else and will now be done in Australia. The simplest possible example of this is we export millions of tonnes of iron ore. We take rocks, we dig them out of the Pilbara, we put them on a train, we send them to a port, we put them onto a ship and we ship them to China. And do they want lots of rocks of iron ore in China? No, they want lots of steel. So they use their cheap power to turn the iron ore rocks into steel, which they then use in construction and building and cars and whatever else. The obvious question is, why don't we not make steel here, given all of the, instead of, you know, you ship a ton of iron ore and you make, I don't know, 100 grams of steel, 100 kilos of steel or something, I don't know exactly how much, but far less than the rocks. So we're shipping a lot of material that's then being thrown away and all these other things and all the cost of the trains and the trucks and the, and the ships and everything else and the embedded emissions and all that as well because they all not grain things at the moment. Well, the reason we don't do it here is because the iron ore to steel process is expensive, has labor costs, but also has energy costs. So if we could create, which a lot of people trying to do with green steel, that's what you hear is green steel, is using renewable energy and a very low cost of power because it takes an awful lot of energy to turn iron ore into steel. If we had a very low cost of energy, we could do more of that here and we would export higher value steel than lower value iron ore and capture some of that economic value here by, in effect, exporting the embedded energy that's in those goods. And there's lots of other examples of how we do that. The total value of that boggles the mind at the size and impact it could have on the Australian economy. I think what we've got to do is just start proving some of this stuff. That's exactly why I'm in a sun cable. It's like, man, we just got to go do it. And I'm telling the team all the time there, I'm like, let's just do it. We got to just do this, right? Yes, the economics have to make sense. Yes, Singapore has to buy the power. Yes, we have to commit super funds and investors and everything else. Yes, we have to do all that, but we have to build one of them. We build a cable, we'll have a lot more, right? There'll be a lot of competition because if it's proven to be an economic business, right, a profitable business, then people will go build more of them and that will be good for Australia in general. Same with green steel, same with all the hydrogen stuff. Like we're just sort of starting down the front. It sounds overly simplistic, but sometimes people get worried that, ah, I don't think we can do that now. We don't have the technology now to do it rather than just actually getting involved in the commercial realities of doing it. Those three things you just mentioned, they're incredible. How much tech are we waiting on to make those three things happening? Uh, the simple answer is none. <laughs> that's the, that's, to be honest, that's the simple answer. Yes, you can. the tech will always get better. Yeah. Yes, there are things we need to do. Yes, there are yeah. things we need to build. If you look at Sun Cable as a single example, we don't need any new 
cable technology, material science of the what's going to make up the cable, right? Like we need a new material to make it out of graphene or stuff. Yes, new materials are coming along. Cables will get better. Absolutely. We don't need any new solar panels. We have solar panels. We just need a ton of them. Do we need any new batteries? No, we don't think we need new batteries. So like we have all the component parts yeah. and we can buy them. We need a lot of them. We need to get them out in the middle of nowhere and build them, which is very hard. It's a massive logistical engineering exercise. Australia is really good at large-scale logistical engineering exercises. We have a long history of also doing this, right? So we have the talent, the brains. We have the finances. You have the fifth biggest financial market in the world. And we have the engineering skills, the project management. I mean, just literally shipping millions and millions and millions of solar panels to the middle of Tennant Creek and building them and wiring them together is a non-trivial logistical exercise on a massive scale, right? We can do all of that. And we need a lot of very careful modeling because we're dealing with massive amounts of power in a very sophisticated, complex system that we need to put in place all of the right measurements. You know, we've got a ship going at the moment across the seafloor to measure the exact path and route. Um, you want to avoid things like earthquakes and stuff. And so there's, yes, we know how to do all of these things. We've got to put them together. We know how to make green steel. Will we make it cheaper? Yes. We know how to make hydrogen. <laughs> will it get cheaper? Yes. There's no doubt that hydrogen will be cheaper to manufacture. People will make better electrolyzers and better ways of using renewable energy and all of these things will keep going. We just have to keep that movement in the right direction, right? We're not waiting on any technological breakthroughs. Don't be snowed by the technology roadmap. That's the one of the biggest bullshit things in the world. <laughs> we don't need, we, nor are we going to actually make any impact on renewable technology. The world scale of that stuff is, is far larger than anything Australia is going to do that we are not already doing. We have lots of great Australian businesses that are trying to make that technology and science improve it, right? And make better panels and make cheaper ways of installing panels, for example. That's really important. It's not the cost of the panel. It's how much it costs to get the panel onto your roof in a safe way and installed and producing energy, right? The, the system cost of the entire thing. There's lots of people looking at different ways of reducing parts of it, cheaper quoting, right? If they don't have to come to your house to quote on your panels, you know, we can do that virtually with Google Maps and all sorts of devices. Then I can spit out 20 quotes in a day. Well, I've produced the whole cost of the system. You spoke earlier about the cycle of anger and then hope, and then that you go around in, you know, this kind of way, uh, and then you, you get, you feel better about solving problems. Just listening to you for the last little while, Mike, I feel a whole lot better than I did earlier this morning because uh, I, I felt, felt pretty shit today out with Wolf. And I remember that going back to the day that I met you, I don't know if you remember, it was, I think it was late August, maybe even early September, and it was 34 degrees and 86% humidity in Sydney that day. It was a hot summer day in early September and I was horrified walking into that room going, it's too fucking hot at this time of year. This is not good. This is bad. And I met you on that day and I'm really grateful I did, man, because, yeah, I might go a little deeper into the fear and the anger. My anger can manifest as fear as well. And I try really hard to have that kind of hope that you've been talking about. And speaking with you today has really left me with a sense of like, even though I might have this kind of bottomless despair that shows up, you're not alone. You're not Robinson Crusoe in this, mate. And there are people around you, people with you, people you look up to, people you want to aspire to be like, who are all in this space. And I got to thank you for that, man. Oh, that's right. I think, I think that's, I think that's a great message to take away. I appreciate those words. I think we will solve this problem. We have to solve this problem and we will, and we can, 
It's not just aspirational. That's what we can. Embedded in all that should be there's a huge opportunity for Australia. Like there's a vision of a better Australia where we're not the climate criminals of the world. We're actually contributing in a positive way. And that's what we have to go do. That's that's what you know. Yasu, you should vote for. We should be hopeful for. We can help lead the world out of some of this problem, rather than sort of being an anchor. It, it's amazing to be in a country that has that opportunity and that possibility. We need the vision, the leadership, the execution, all the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people who'll be involved in that to actually execute it. Yes, but we have the possibility and the opportunity to start with in our country right now. We just have to kind of seize that and go after that and. I think we can do it. I think we should be incredibly hopeful. And that will make a difference on a world scale, right? And there's lots of other countries doing their own thing, and that's great. But like, you know, focus on your own backyard and we can we have such an amazing opportunity. Um, we've just got to get after it. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to do this, man. I'm really, really, really grateful. Have a great day, mate. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this, brother. Man, you too. That, my friends, was Mike Cannon Brooks. You can find him on Twitter, and I thoroughly recommend it. M Cannon Brooks, M C A N O N B R O O K E S. Mike Cannon Brooks. And what's wild is, you know, talking to Mike, you can just see that there's something inherently wrong with our system of government in Australia. Because I don't need to tell you that the best leaders in our country do not work in our system of government. Hell no. The best leaders in our country, the most forward-thinking people who can enrol others and push forward and create new things and exciting things and adventurous things, those people wouldn't go near those jobs. Wouldn't go near them. Like, I listen to Mike. I'm like, dude, someone like Mike, someone like Stan Grant, like, come on, come on man. Why don't you? No, they're not going to go near them. And that's really shit in that we have built a system of government that discourages the best leaders in our country from going for those jobs. And we are going to need really, really strong leaders. Not strong man leaders. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about strong, inclusive leaders. And so, yeah, when I listen to Mike and I think, yeah, he'd never go for those jobs. He'd say no if it was offered to him on a plate. I think, how can we change the system of government? How can we change the system of government so that the best people for the job end up getting the job? Because you cannot tell me that pe- that Barnaby and Scott are the best people for the job. Because they ain't. Anyway, that's enough from me. Thank you so much for listening. We're going to be okay. It's you. It's me. It's Audrey. It's Mike. It's your kids. It's my kids. We're going to find a way to figure it out. We are. We are. It's going to be bumpy. But we'll figure it out. Okay? Look after yourself. Try and get some exercise. Get a vaccine if you can. Wear a mask if you can't. Do your best. Cook a dinner for a neighbour. Audrey did that last night. She's amazing. She cooked dinner for the neighbours either side of us last night. Spent all day in the kitchen and then it's wonderful. This enormous sense of well-being it gave her. I'm so proud of who she is as a human being. She just, you know, spent so long making all this food. Just gave it to the people in the houses either side of us. She's an incredible woman. And, Yeah. I love it a bit. Anyway, don't forget, take some time to look into the eyes of your lover and remember why you go out with them or married them. Look in the eyes of your kids, be in the moment, because you want to have those moments to remember, no matter what happens, okay? Okay. Thanks, Mike, for coming on the show. You're amazing. 
I've got to say thank you to the people that helped me make this show. Rachel Barrett, my executive producer, the EP of my life. Uh, Andy Ma, my audio director. Toe Hider on the music. And you for listening. Thank you so much. If you like this show, please just tell a friend. Tell someone, hey, did you hear that one with Mike Cannon-Brooks? Just send it to your uncle or your auntie or whoever's terrified and they're going to, no, 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 I'm going to vote with the people I always vote for. It's like, no, 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 no. Vote for fucking someone who's thinking about the future, not someone who's trying to keep the jobs going from the past because those jobs from the past ain't going to exist in a decade. So we need someone who's thinking with their brain ahead, okay? So maybe this episode's a good one to share because it's pretty inspiring, pretty inspiring stuff, as you can no doubt agree. Thanks for listening. Until we speak on... uh, on Thursday is when I'm back with Jimmy for Idle Australians. Until we speak then, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Listener.